This episode contains graphic details of murder and other crimes. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome back to Not Always Polite. I hope you guys had a really great Christmas and uh, Happy New Year. Um, This is going to be part two to episode 12, which is the honor killing of the Shafia family. If you haven't yet listened to part one, I, of course, would highly recommend going back and listening or else you might be a little bit lost. But I'll do a quick little recap here uh, just to catch everyone up. I know it's been like two weeks, so... Let's go into a little recap here really quick. So again, there is a lot of moving parts in this story and the recounts of the events depend on who's telling it. Um, I'm basically going off of a McLean's article that um, had a lot of detail. So anyways, um, so Mohammed Shafia has two wives and they have a bunch of kids together um, and he's really, really strict. So one of his wives, Tuba, she's the second wife, and she mothered all of the children. Um, the first wife, she could not have kids. So that is why Tuba mothered all of the children. Um, basically, in order to kind of free herself from the dictatorship that her father was running back home, one of the daughters, Zainab, she went and married, well was briefly, very briefly married to uh, a boy. And they ended up getting divorced because Tuba, her mother, lost her shit and fainted and made a whole scene. So basically, everyone's still afraid of their dad. The first wife is trying to get away. The daughters are trying to get away. Everyone's trying to get away, basically. Um, And yeah, that pretty much sums it up. Um, Just trying to go through my notes here and see if there's anything else. And it doesn't look like it. So, okay, um, let's get on to episode two. Um, the marriage was just uh, ended uh, between Zainab and Wahid. So let's get into episode two. Oh, yeah, and the first wife, her name was Rona. Uh, she was a big part of the first episode. So Rona was the first wife who married Muhammad, and then Tuba was the second wife. Okay, let's go. A few days later, inside a different restaurant, Sahar was hugging her man's Sanchez. By the time she noticed her younger brother walk in, it was too late. Quote, he started to ask if Sahar was my girlfriend, Sanchez said. Quote, I told him we had just met. They were both desperate to hide the truth, and Sanchez even kissed one of Sahar's friends to help back up his story. Sahar was absolutely terrified that her brother referred to as B, would reveal her secret. On May 30th, exactly one month before she died, she fainted in class and had to be rushed to the hospital. But by then, it appears her secret had already been exposed. On June 1st, Ahmed hopped on a plane to join his father in Dubai, and when investigators later searched the house, they found that boarding pass stuffed in his suitcase along with numerous photos of 
Sahar and Sanchez taken straight from her cell phone and developed into prints. They were proof of her like dishonor to her father, proof that she too deserved to die in her father's eyes. Not long after her brother left for Dubai, Zainab sent another email to her now ex-husband. The email read, We had an amazing love story together. It was my dream to marry you, and I did it once. So now, even one day, if something happens to us, like dead, I won't die without my dream being fulfilled. Which is very ominous. On Monday, June 5th, Sahar told a teacher how worried she was. As the teacher put it, quote, She was afraid that her brother was going to tell her father that she was a whore. The 17-year-old was in such a state that the teacher phoned the DPJ yet again. The worker on the other end suggested that she find a shelter to stay in. At school the next Monday, Sahar met with another social worker. Like so many times before, she told Stephanie Benjamin about her tyrant of an older brother and her desire to find a job. She also opened up about her ultimate dream to become a gynecologist and help women in her native country, Afghanistan. The next night, on June 9th, Zainab sent another email to Heed. She had not seen her dad since fleeing the house, and he was due home any day now. Quote, I must go to the airport and say sorry, she wrote. I hope he forgets everything, but that he did not. GD was hardly going to school at all. She was failing all four of her classes, and the one day she did bother to show up, a vice principal sent her home for wearing a low-cut sweater. While Mohammed was gone, Jidi was also caught shoplifting at Walmart. She tried to steal a pink camisole and some leggings. Jidi was showing more brash, more uncontrollability day by day. She told anyone who'd listen that she wanted out of the house. And as Ahmed told her parents, no doubt realized... She would not keep quiet if Zainab and Sahar turned up dead. She would be the first one to call the cops and blow the whistle, so she kind of dug her own grave by being rebellious and like sticking up for herself, living her life. That June, Fahima Vorjets, Rona's relative in Virginia, returned home after a month spent working in Afghanistan with her U.S.-based women's group for Afghan women. On her phone were numerous voicemails from Rona saying that she really needed to talk to her. They were desperate, message for je- desperate messages for Jet's recalls. It sounded like she was in really big trouble. It seemed to me like she wanted to do something. But because Rona always used a payphone, for Jet's had no way to reach her. Quote, she never called back, and then I heard that she was dead. Mohammed and Ahmed landed in Montreal on June 13, 2009. By all accounts, including his own, Mohammed kissed Zainab on the forehead and forgave her for everything. In his version, he also slipped her $100. But nothing, of course, was truly forgiven. He just wanted his daughter to feel comfortable and assume that things were fine. Back at the house, they kept like doing these weird Google searches. Mountains on water in Quebec. To rent a boat in Montreal. Faxed documentaries on murders. Like, guys, if you're ever going to commit a murder, don't Google s- stuff like that. Like, come on. Really? On June 19th, Ahmed canceled Zainab's cell phone plan. The day after that, his cell phone traveled all the way to and all the way back from rural Grand Remos, Quebec, nearly 300 kilometers from their house in Montreal. His internet research had escalated into full-blown recognizance. At home that night, Ahmed's laptop conducted yet another Google search. Where to commit a murder? Ahmed, come on, buddy. Use your head a little bit here. 
At this point, his sisters and his stepmom only had 10 days left to live. On June 22nd, the morning after Father's Day, Sanchez typed a text in Spanish to Sahar saying, I love you with all my heart and I can't love anybody more beautiful than you because you are like the air that I breathe every morning, the sun that warms me up. I want you to be the owner of my heart. 30 minutes later, he sent another. The only thing I would wish in the world is to have you every day of my life. A few hours after Sahar read that message, her father purchased a used car, a 2004 Nissan Sentra, black with gray interior. The next afternoon, the trunk was full of luggage, packed for what he was saying was a summer vacation. When Feliz Javid heard about the vacation, he couldn't stop thinking about the phone call with his brother-in-law, the trip to Sweden, the picnic near the water, the murder of Zainab. Quote, I was seeing all those scenes like a movie, he said. I thought something was going to happen. So many details of the car ride, the rest stops, the whispers between the conspiring killers will obviously never be fully known. But because Sahar spent so much time of the journey texting her her lover Sanchez, investigators were able to retrace the family's precise route minute by minute using cell phone towers. The family was split between their Lexus and the Nissan. The Shafias left Montreal shortly after 3 p.m. on June 23rd. They headed straight to Grand Ramos, the same faraway place that Ahmed visited the day his laptop was searching for how to commit a murder. When they arrived just before sunset, the sisters met a woman walking some puppies. Sahar snapped a photo of Jidi holding one of the dogs. The fur was pressed up against her face. Mohammed and Ahmed also took a walk by themselves. If Grand Ramos was supposed to be the crime scene, something changed that original plan because after sleeping at a motel and stopping for a barbecue of chicken kebabs, the family got back inside the cars on June 24th and headed south towards Ottawa. Plotted on a map, their trip to that point was basically a 450-kilometer horseshoe. As investigators discovered, the route got even more suspicious. Heading westbound along the Highway 401 through Brockville and Gananoquay, 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 I'm probably pronouncing that wrong, Sahar's text messages pinged off each passing tower. But for at least 40 minutes between 8.36 p.m. and 9.16 p.m., her phone utilized just one, a tower within plain sight of Kingston Mills, a historic lock station at the southern tip of the Rideau Canal. As bathroom stops go, it wasn't close to the highway, so I'm not sure why else they would have stopped there. Um, Sahar continued typing, unaware that another recognizance mission was underway. Back in the car, the family kept driving all the way to Niagara Falls, reaching their motel in the wee hours of the morning on June 25th. If the cell phone photos were the only evidence, Sahar was a typical teenager on a typical family vacation. She snapped a shot of her and Zainab standing in front of the bathroom mirror, her and Rona dressed for dinner, herself in a green and brown bikini. But the actual cell phone records revealed something much more sinister, providing the police with one of the most critical clues. On the night of June 27th, just two days after the Shafias arrived in Niagara Falls, someone using Sahar's phone dialed Ahmed's number. The resulting signal bounced off a tower just 16 kilometers from the Kingston Mills lock. Hamid or Mohammed or both had left the rest of the family and driven five hours back to stake out their chosen crime scene one last time. 
Sahar, if it was really her who dialed the number, had no way of knowing that Ahmed's cell phone was all the way in Kingston. Only after she died, when investigators sourced the phone logs, did it come to light that that was what happened. But what is clear is that Sahar seized on her brother's absence, talking to her boyfriend for more than an hour that night. They snuck in two more calls the next morning. That afternoon, on June 28th, Sanchez rifled rifled off more text messages, each one professing his love. Quote, The world is so large that one day I could lose you. Every time I close my eyes, I only think of you, and every time I close my eyes, I only want to see you. The last one arrived at 6.19 p.m. If I had the moon, the sun, the sky, or the sea, or the stars at this moment, I would give it all to you, my love. The only thing at this moment, what I have is my love and my heart and many kisses to give you forever, my love. The Shafias checked out of the Days Inn on June 29, 2009. A surveillance camera in the lobby recorded Ahmed paying the bill for both rooms, in cash, of course. It was 8 p.m. by the time the cars steered into the highway. Onto the highway. Into the highway? Whatever. Just another part of their master plan. Leaving so late would ensure that the victims were sleepy or at least groggy when the ambush came. According to the prosecution versions of the events, the story that the jury ultimately believed is uh, as follows. With the Lexus in the lead, Ahmed at the wheel, the caravan drove east along the Queen Elizabeth Way, or the QEW, Sahar texting away, bouncing off towers. Approaching Toronto, they took a scenic detour heading downtown. At 9.39 p.m., from inside the Nissan, Sahar took a picture of the Rogers Center. Three minutes later, she took a picture of the CN Tower. The cars went north onto Young Street and up through the city, turning east onto the 401. As the clock approached 10.30 p.m., they stopped at a McDonald's in Ajax. During the bathroom break, Tuba took a brief conversation, less than two minutes with another one of her brothers who was not identified. He was worried, it seems checking in to make sure that Mohammed had not followed through on his homicidal threats. At 10.54 p.m., as the cars carried on, Sahar received another call from a friend. They spoke for 37 minutes. It was the last time she answered the phone or replied to a text. The cars coasted through the darkness, past Trenton, Belleville, and Odessa. By now, prosecutors believe Mohammed was behind the wheel of the Nissan, driving the potential victims. They went right past all the major exits for Kingston, the ones fully signed off for hotels and fast food. At Highway 15, the city's final off-ramp, they turned north and went towards the locks. It was almost 1.30 in the morning at this point. At 1.36, Sahar's phone received its last text message above ground. It was from Sanchez. As the killers predicted, the Nissan's passengers were in various states of sleep as they pulled into the Kingston Mills parking lot. Muhammad got out of the Nissan and Tuba got in. It was her job to stay with the four victims as her husband and son went, quote, looking for a motel. The girls would have no reason to be suspicious and no reason to run. They were with their mother after all. If Tuba wrestled with any second thoughts, an urge to warn her daughters about the impending execution, she didn't act on it. Five minutes away at the Kingston East Motel, Muhammad and Ahmed woke up the manager. They needed two rooms for the night. When asked how many guests were staying, they seemed confused. Six, nine, 
They weren't sure, but they settled on six. Ahmed handed over the cash, of course. After dropping off the other three children, A, B, and C, Mohammed and Ahmed drove out of the parking lot, turning left towards the locks. When Tuba saw their headlights in the distance, she jumped out of the Nissan and ran towards them. This was a signal that the time had come. The exact location remains a mystery, but somewhere at the secluded lock station, four women were held underwater, one by one until they stopped moving. Three of them, all but Sahar, had bruises on top of their heads, suggesting some kind of blow to the head in those final moments. Dead, or at least unconscious, the bodies were piled back in the Nissan, the front seats reclined. The idea was to stage it as a traffic accident, to convince the cops that they were dealing with a tragic, late-night joyride. But as one of them drove the car into its final resting place, doubts must have crept into their minds. Just to reach the water's edge, the Nissan had to jump a high curb, drive across some grass, and make a hard left around a rock outcropping, and then a quick right around a narrow wall. The route looked nothing like a split-second wrong turn. Like, this had to have been deliberate to get over there. Once in position, the driver left the engine running, got out, reached through the open driver's side window, and moved the gear shift into the first, assuming on its own power, the car would plunge into the water over the concrete lip, but it didn't happen. The front wheels went over the ledge, but nothing else. The car teetered in the night, tire spinning, engine running with four potentially dead bodies inside. The plan was now in jeopardy. So what were they going to do next? One of the three reached through the window and turned off the engine. What were they going to do next? They, the car was <laughs> dangling in plain sight, so they had to do something. Um, they, only, they decided that they only had one choice. They got in the Lexus, drove up behind the Nissan, and ram it over the rest of the way. So that's what they did. The collision ended up shattering the SUV's headlight, leaving bits of plastic scattered on the ground. Before speeding away, the killers scrambled to pick up the broken shards, but of course they didn't get them all. Ahmed did call the police that morning from Montreal. At 7.55 a.m., just hours after the Nissan was sunk into the lock, he reported a single car fender bender in an empty parking lot near their house. He was told, or he told the responding cop that he accidentally smashed the left front end of his Lexus into a yellow, yellow utility pole, which obviously isn't true. At 8.30 a.m., he phoned the Kingston East Motel and spoke to Muhammad. He then dialed Sahar's cell phone, knowing full well it was submerged in the canal. When the call went straight to voicemail, he phoned again. By then, Ahmed was behind the steering wheel of the family's green Pontiac minivan, speeding back to Kingston. He was in such a rush to switch cars and stage the bogus accident that he took everyone's luggage, including his mother's purse, with him to Montreal. Back at the motel, Ahmed and his parents dropped the other children at a nearby Tim Hortons and initiated the next phase of their plan, which was the missing persons report. They walked into the police headquarters just after 12 o'clock. Ahmed, if not all three of them, had been awake all night long. At the locks, investigators were already combing the scene, alerted to the sunken sedan by a Parks Canada employee earlier that morning. It didn't take long for the police at the station to make the connection. Escorted into a private room, the trio was told, but they already knew, 
their relatives were dead, discovered in a bizarre, watery grave. If Mohammed did shed any tears about the news, they were gone by 3.45 p.m. when he sat down in Detective Constable Dempster's for uh, his tape-recorded interview. Composed and coherent, he talked about his business interests overseas, the $2 million shopping mall in Laval, and Zainab's pending engagement plans. It wasn't 100%, he explained. His Dari answers translated by a Farsi interpreter. Farsi and Dari are essentially the same. It's like British English and American English. Um, But Mohammed also mentioned, without being asked, that his kids liked to, quote, turn on the car and take it away, which is pretty sus. Like, why are you saying that without being asked? It's really weird. But these people aren't obviously the most smart killers ever. But anyways, he said they stopped in Kingston early that morning because his wife, who was driving the Nissan, was feeling dizzy and needed to sleep. So she waited with the, quote, ones who are no longer, while he and Ahmed went searching for a place to sleep. When the Nissan rejoined them at the motel, Ahmed left for Montreal, quote, to work on the building or something. And everyone else went to bed. And that's when Zainab and Sahar asked for the keys to get some clothes from the trunk of the Nissan. Detective Dempster kept returning to the portion of the story that was a key point in the trial. Where did Tuba wait while the Lexus looked for the motel? And how did she know where to meet them afterwards? The truth, of course, is that the Nissan waited at the locks parking lot and never made it to the motel at all. But in order to sell their story, that Zainab, with no license and no permission, took the car for a joyride, they had to tell the police that it did get there. So when Dempster asked the obvious question, where did Tupa wait for the Lexus? Mohammed couldn't tell him the truth because it was the precise spot where everybody died. Quote, I don't know the place exactly because I am not familiar here, he said. But it was somewhere in the city, he said, not off the highway. From there, we got to the hotel. My wife arrived to the hotel. We stopped the car and there was nothing else. Quote, how did your wife know which hotel to go to? Detective asked. You know, the distance was little, he said. The detective was so confused and asked another obvious question. The detective was still confused, so he asked another obvious question. Quote, what do you think happened, Mohammed? Mohammed responds, I just woke up in the morning and didn't see them. That's it. I don't know anything else. You know, the car, your car. The Nissan was found underwater, the detective continued. You said it, Mohammed answered. Any thoughts, any ideas how it got there? The detective asked, and Mohammed responds, No, 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 not at all, because this is the first time such an incident has befallen me. As he left the interview room, Mohammed actually checked his watch. Ahmed was up next, and he did not need an interpreter as he was fluent in English. He looked like any other 18-year-old Canadian with Air Jordan warm-up pants and curly black hair. When Detective Dempster asked if he wanted some tea or coffee, he responded by saying, Oh no, it's all good. Dempster asked Ahmed the same question he asked his dad. Where did Tuba wait with the Nissan? Ahmed said, I think it was a McDonald's or something. I'm not sure. They probably should have had their stories straight before they went in there, but that's just, oh, excuse me, that's just me. Once they reached the motel, 
Ahmed said he plopped on the bed for a few minutes, just long enough to hear Zainab ask for the keys. Then he and Alexis left for Montreal. Why Montreal? Ahmed's reasons ranged from, quote, something personal to, I forgot my laptop, to sometimes, quote, you don't feel like staying at one place with your parents, you know? Each new response only made the detective so much more suspicious of him. Again, Ahmed, get your story straight, buddy. So the detective said, Ahmed, do you know what happened to your sisters? Point blank. Ahmed said no. The detective said, you don't? Ahmed said no. Dempster then told Ahmed about an eyewitness, an eight-year-old boy, it turns out, who had just spoken to an investigator on the scene. According to his story, there were two cars at the water's edge, but only one, the bigger one, drove away. Ahmed asked, you mean someone pushed them in? Up until that point, Dempster had never suggested that scenario. Ahmed, I think you know more than what you've told me here today, Dempster continued. I have no idea, Ahmed answered. You mean someone must have, uh, uh, together? Must have come with the, together with them? Dempster said, I'm not saying that person caused it to happen. I'm not saying that they did it on purpose, but there is somebody out there that knows what really happened, and we need to speak to that person. Ahmed said he was, quote, shocked by the suggestion. If I would have witnessed something, I would be the first person to tell my mom and dad, he insisted. How would I feel inside? Dempster made it clear that he wasn't accusing him of anything. But just to be sure, he said that the Montreal police were going to swing by the house and take a peek at the Lexus. When Tuba took her turn in the interview room, Dempster got right to the point. What am I trying to understand? And I think everyone wants to know is how the car got to the motel from the motel to the water. Can I say, she answered. The detective said, yes, please, obviously. Tuba said she was the one who steered the Nissan into Kingston, but was too tired and nauseous to go anywhere further. She parked, she didn't say where, she said somewhere, and waited for the others to find a place to sleep. Quote, when they got the motel, they wanted to come to get me, she explained, but I came myself. She was changing for bed around 2 a.m. when Zainab walked in and asked for the keys. Quote, I don't understand what happened after that. So let's just talk about Tuba for a second here. Tuba has three dead daughters at this point. Her life is supposedly destroyed, told her story as if she only lost the car. No tears, no emotions, but she did make sure to point out that her oldest daughter was in a hurry to get back to Montreal. Tuba even claimed that Zainab, who, again, did not have a license, let alone highway experience, was begging to drive during the trip back to Niagara Falls. Quote, she would do whatever she wanted to do, Tuba said. I think she thought, quote, my mom and dad are asleep, let's go for a drive and return. Dempster asked, where were you there when the car went into the water? She said, no, I wasn't there. If you were not there, my job is to find out what happened and tell you, he continued. As a parent, one parent to another, if something happened to my child, I would want to know the truth. Tuba nodded in agreement, saying, I would have told you everything, but I haven't seen anything. If I knew, I would have told you, and you could have helped me. Dempster leaned in close. People have not been truthful with us today. This detective Dempster is not playing around anymore. It was now 8.40 p.m., 
Ahmed was back in the interview room and, as promised, the investigator had contacted the Montreal police. Dempster now knew about the, quote, single car crash that morning. And he asked Ahmed, why are you hiding that information from me? His Ahmed answered immediately. He said, if I would tell you, you would go and tell my dad. Ahmed said he was on his way to grab some breakfast when he accidentally smacked against the pole and just didn't want his dad to find out until he got home. Quote, I don't know where you're going with this, honestly, he said. I didn't chase her, man. Did your dad, Dempster asked, and Ahmed said no. Why were the girls cruising around the outskirts of Kingston at 2 o'clock in the morning? Were they hungry, scared, sneaking back home? I don't know, you know, Ahmed said. I want to find out as much as you do. After he finished asking him all the questions he had, Dempster left Ahmed alone in the interview room. For seven minutes, the camera still rolling, the 18-year-old got a preview of what life would be like in jail. He flexed his biceps and flipped through his wallet and picked his nose. In Montreal, Ricardo Sanchez was dialing his phone, desperate to reach Sahar. He would call her 22 times over the next three days. In each attempt, he was sent straight to voicemail. Sahar's body bag was the first on the autopsy table. Dr. Christopher Milroy had been briefed on the basics. Niagara Falls, submerged car, open window. And as he examined the young corpse in front of him, he filled his clipboard with meticulous notes. The memory stick in her pocket, the belly button ring, the potatoes in her stomach, which were most certainly french fries from that Ajax McDonald's. Sahar was, quote, a well-nourished, well-developed female, he concluded. There were no fresh injuries. Rona, like all of them, had, quote, washerwoman hands, wrinkled like prunes after so long in the water. Her eyes were brown, her hair black, and her heart was the heaviest of the four, 300 grams. But it wasn't until Dr. Melroy peeled back the skin on her skull that he discovered the red and black bruises. Both were on the crown of Rona's head, covering six centimeters in diameter. Quote, it is a very substantial area of bruising, he said. It could occur in one impact, or it could be the result of two impacts. Judy, the third on the table, had nearly identical bruises on her head, although they were smaller. So did Zainab. Quote, it is unusual that all three would have similar injuries, the pathologist testified. It clearly requires an explanation, meaning this doesn't just happen randomly, like something caused it. Um, but that explanation would never come. Science could confirm only three things for sure. Head injuries occurred while the victims were still alive. The dead can't bruise. Um, the official cause of death was drowning, and there were no drugs or other paralyzing substances found in their blood. Were they knocked unconscious before the water filled their lungs? Did they actually drown in the canal or somewhere beforehand? Were they dead or alive when the Nissan sank? As Milroy put it, quote, the pathology is neutral. But outside the autopsy room, investigators were putting together clues um, that could, you know, give them clues as to what actually happened. The day the bodies were found, while Ahmed was dodging questions about his parking lot incident, and observant constable named Rob Ethering Etherington, sorry, Rob Etherington, <laughs> noticed something near the locks, tiny shards of plastic, seven pieces in a total. The next afternoon, with Mohammed's permission, Detective Steve Koopman drove to Montreal to see the mysterious SUV with his own eyes. In the trunk, he found more broken bits of plastic, 
These ones obviously dented from the front end, which, of course, Ahmed blamed on the yellow post. It was Etherington examining both bags of plastic who made the connection. Each fragment, the ones from the locks and the ones from the Lexus, fit together like a puzzle. Clearly, the Nissan had not been alone that night, which corroborates the witness's statement. So this uh, 72-hour-old investigation was now classified as a homicide. For the subjects, like their victims, things unraveled at a furious pace. Did I say subjects? I meant suspects. For the suspects, like their victims, things unraveled at a furious pace. While Mohammed and Tuba were granting tearful interviews to the media, detectives were quietly learning the truth about the life inside their home, about the 911 calls, the child welfare complaints, Zainab running away, Rona's true identity being his first wife, Feliz Javid, Latif Haideri, Honor. When investigators seized the Lexus on July 10th, they found two curious photographs inside the console. Both were of Sahar and her boyfriend. A week later, just 17 days after the women died, a judge authorized the use of wiretaps on their phones. In a classic bruise, police invited Mohammed, Tuba, and Ahmed back to Kingston on July 18th, supposedly to return um, some belongings and update them on the investigation. While they were inside the station, cops in the parking lot bugged their minivan. Before sending them home, officers also took the family on a tour of the locks, telling them that uh, a camera had been found nearby and detectives were pouring through the footage, which isn't true. When the family climbed back in the van, police were eavesdropping. Quote, they're lying, Mohammed said in Dari. If there was a camera, they'd access it in a minute. Tuba agreed. There was no camera over there, she said. I looked around. There wasn't any. God forbid. God forbid there was one in that little room. All three of us would have been recorded. Ahmed was driving, the engine humming in the background. Quote, that night there was no electricity there. Everywhere was pitch darkness. You remember, Tuba? Yes, she answered. At one point, Ahmed actually warned his parents that the police, quote, can fasten something to, your, to record your voice. He kept, they kept talking anyways. I mean, he tried to tell them. To hell with them and their boyfriends, Mohammed said. Filthy and rotten children. Can you imagine he's saying this about his own dead children that he literally killed? Like, I can't. It's insane. For the next three days, police would record Mohammed cursing his dead daughters and basking in their demise. He was a good father, quote, a liberal who took on grudgery for them and yet they quote betrayed him and undressed themselves in front of boys and acted like whores if we remain alive one night or one year we have no tension in our hearts our daughter is in the arms of this or that boy or that man muhammad rallied during another ride to the van god curse their graduation curse of god on both of them on their kind god's curse on them for a generation May the devil shit on their graves. Muhammad, are you okay? <laughs> like somebody give this man a hug. Like He's really going through it. His primary complaint, repeated over and over, was that Zainab defied tradition. If she wanted to get married, they would have found her a proper suitor. You and I were both trying to find a good person to give her away to, he told his wife. We weren't going to keep her for ourselves. That wouldn't have been an appropriate thing. During another conversation on July 20th, 
Tuba agreed that Zainab, quote, was already done, but wished the other, the two others, so Sahar and Jidi, were not. No, Tuba, they messed up, Mohammed said. There was no other way. They were treacherous. They betrayed both themselves and us, like this woman standing on the side of the road. If you stopped the car, she would go anywhere with you. For the love of God, Tuba, damnation on this life of ours, on these years of life that we lead. When I tell you to be patient, you tell me that life is hard. It isn't harder than watching them every hour with boyfriends. For this reason, whenever I see those pictures, I am consoled. I say to myself, quote, you did well. They would come back to life a hundred times for you to do the same again. This is how hurt I am. So at this point, the police hadn't heard enough. The next afternoon, July 21st, officers arrived at the Shafia residence with a search warrant and child welfare workers. For their own safety, A, B, and C were removed from the home and placed in protective care. Again, that's why we refer to them as A, B, and C, to protect their identities. Amid the commotion, the detectives made sure to hand Ahmed a copy of the warrant, which listed all their names and the exact offense they were under investigation for. Four counts of first-degree murder. Quote, we wanted him to read it, Dempster explained. We wanted to hear what they had to say to each other when presented with the fact that we believed that they had committed murder of their own family members. Again, the tactic worked. My conscience, my God, my religion, my creed aren't shameful, Mohammed told the others back inside the van. Even if they hoist me up into the gallows, nothing is more dear to me than my honor. Let's leave our destiny to God and may God never make me, you, or your mother honorless. There is, quote, he said later, no value of life without honor. So the detectives spent hours inside the house cataloging and taking goodness, taking potential pieces of evidence like phone bills, passports, a pink photo album with Disney characters on the cover, Rona's diary, the laptop, Almond's suitcase, which was still packed with pictures of Sahar that he took to Dubai to show his dad. In Ahmed's bedroom, the police also found a handwritten essay, which was titled Importance of Traditions and Customs, which was written for a recent school assignment. Quote, traditions and customs are to be followed to the end of one's life. The mistakes were marked by a teacher in pen. So he had literally handed this into school. Quote, it doesn't matter at all whether you, you're close to the community following the specific tra- traditions or living millions of miles away. Traditions and customs of a person is like his identity and what makes him special. So that's obviously just a testament to how much Ahmed like believed in this stuff. It's crazy. When the police left, the Shafis were allowed back inside. What had been a family of 10, then a family of six, was now down to three with the children being taken away. Quote, oh God, what kind of disasters have you brought over me, Tuba said, walking through the house. Oh God. The wiretaps were still rolling at 2 2:56 a.m. when Ahmed's cell phone rang. On the other end of the line was his little brother. "Look, Ahmed, you are 100% caught," he said. The police interviewed both B and his sister A and made it clear that their mom, dad, and brother were responsible for what happened to their sisters and like stepmother, I guess. "Quote, I don't know what's going to happen," Ahmed told his brother. I will tell you this in advance. Don't be shocked when you hear anything. So that kind of sounds like a confession to me, but we'll see. Tuba spoke to all three of the children that morning. 
She told C, the youngest, not to cry. She asked B for more details about his chat with the police, which is so shady, like this kid's going through enough. Loyal to the end, A had another strategy. She said, you should get a lawyer and keep saying, no, we didn't do it, which is so sad. She's obviously like super brainwashed. Six hours later, they were all in handcuffs, like the three of them. So basically they got arrested for murder to sum that up so we're pretty much gonna fast forward now um the trial begins on october 20th 2011 and i'm just gonna cover the important pieces because you know we already know what happened um every day the gravity of the evidence became more apparent teachers social workers and police officers testified about the abuse and dysfunction inside the shafia home and the calls for help that in hindsight, were grossly underestimated, as it seems to often happen. Rob Etherington told the jury about his eureka moment with the headlight pieces. Brent White, the very first officer on scene, recalled how instantly strange the, quote, accident seemed to be. He said, I was thinking, this is pretty difficult to get in this spot. I would, it would have to be driven there on purpose, like I mentioned. When Ricardo Sanchez took the stand, he was asked to read some of the text messages he sent to Zahar in the days before he died. Quote, the only thing that I would wish in this world is to have you every day of my life, he said, with the paper shaking in his hands. Every time I close my eyes, I only want to see you. Rarely did a day pass without the girl's pictures being flashed on monitors. Zahar applying her makeup, Zainab in her hoop earrings, and the picture that the girls took of Judy with the puppy. LaSalle and her co-prosecutor, Gerard Laharis, called fit 50 witnesses over six weeks. Defense lawyers challenged barely any of it. Most of their cross-examination finished within minutes. The closest thing to a heated exchange occurred when... Good lord, I'm going to pronounce this name wrong. Mehmed... Medizene on the witness stand talking about his interrogation of Tuba. Her lawyer, David Crow, suggested that the inspector, an Iranian, should have known that an Afghan woman, for cultural reasons, would be uncomfortable sitting alone with a strange man. Quote, we don't live, live in a perfect world, he said. The background is irrelevant when you are investigating a homicide, which I do agree with to some point, like, Obviously, you still have to respect people's religious beliefs and all that jazz. But, like, if the investigator's a guy, the investigator's a guy. You know what I mean? Two of the Crown's most important witnesses were experts in two very different subjects. Collision reconstruction and patriarchy in Mideastern cultures. The how and the why. Constable Chris Prent, guided by scrapes and scratches, offered, it, offered his opinion on the Nissan's final moments. He noted that the airbags did not deploy, suggesting that the car was traveling at, quote, a snail's pace, that nobody slammed on the brakes. He said that the driver's side of the Nissan Sentra got hung up on a small set of wooden stairs beside the lock, leaving the front tires over the edge. The Nissan's bumper was also dented and gouged, and the S and the E were missing from the Sentra nameplate. According to his analysis, the damage was a perfect match with the marks found on the front end of the Lexus. Imagine that. Even more damning, the bottom of the Sentra contained two long scratches. More proof of his conclusion. 
Quote, in my opinion, the Lexus was used to push the Nissan over the edge into the water, which we all know is what happened. Um, another name I'm not going to pronounce correctly, but uh, Shahrad Mojab did not refer to any of the specific evidence, dense or otherwise, and she was not asked for her thoughts on the three suspects watching her testify. Instead, the professor at the University of Toronto provided the jury with a disturbing history lesson on the world at the heart of the case. Quote, what masquerades as honor is really just a man's need to control a woman's sexuality, she said. In certain patriarchal cultures, not just Muslim cultures, she stressed, a family's fragile reputation literally lives or dies on the conduct of its females. The tiniest infraction, in their minds infraction, talking to a man, going out alone, refusing an arranged marriage, carries massive consequences. Quote, it reflects on who is in power in the household. If a man cannot control his own household, which is represented by the behavior of the female members, it means he cannot be trusted for any other public matters. There was only one way, she said, to erase that shame, which is bloodshed. Within the community, Mojab said, it is an expected act. What is not expected, at least in most murder trials, is for the accused killers to testify. Again, the onus of proof rests with the state and a suspect who takes the stand and exposes himself to cross-examination. Most criminals are smart enough not to take that risk, but like I mentioned, I don't think these guys are the smartest criminals. Not Muhammad or Tuba Yahaya, both of them placed their hands on the Quran and swore to Allah to tell the truth. Muhammad had an innocent explanation for every angle of the prosecution's case. During interrogation, he lied about his true relationship with Rona because he was worried about her immigration file. His daughters, who called him daddy, were allowed to fall in love as long as they didn't hide the relationship. He thought Amar Wahid was a disgraceful drunk, but if that's the man Zainab wanted, fine. Quote, why did they have to escape? The 58-year-old asked. We were not preventing them from doing things. More than once, as an interpreter finished translating the answer, Muhammad eyes glanced at the jury to gauge the reaction. In what might have been the trial's most outrageous moment, Muhammad's lawyer, Peter Kemp, asked him to explain what he really meant when he urged the devil to, quote, shit on their graves, because apparently phrases like that can mean so many different things, am I right? When I say I want the devil to shit on someone's grave, I definitely wish them well. Like, come on, give me a break. Here's what he said he meant when he said that he wanted the devil to shit on his dead daughter's graves. Quote, to me, it means the devil would go out and check with them in their graves. If they have done a good thing, it would be good. If they did a bad thing, it would be up to God to do what he felt was best to do. By this time, LaSalle finished her cross-examination. Muhammad had admitted that his daughters were whores and that they did deserve to die, but he didn't murder them. Can you believe this shit? So LaSalle said, You believe their actions brought about their rightful death, and Muhammad answered yes. You believed your daughters deserved to die for their treachery, LaSalle said. And he said, 
that is up to God what he did. Like, I just can't believe this shit. Muhammad spent two whole days on the stand. His wife was there for six days. Um, She said it felt like 60. Even the simplest questions, like, what did you do when Sahar tried to kill herself? How long did you stop at that McDonald's? What day were the funerals? Triggered a rambling response about Farsi expressions or motherly love or how sick and forgetful she was that night. So basically she was just bullshitting the whole time. But the 42-year-old did want the jury to know the truth, that she was a liar, a very big one, but not anymore. All those lies she blurted out, especially the one about being at the locks with her husband and son when that when half the family drowned, were the words of a desperate woman trying to escape, quote, the clutches of a police interrogator and save Ahmed from torture. So now they're saying the police were torturing them? Like, come on, guys, really? We were a very sincere and collected family, she said, raising her voice. Don't ever tell me that I killed my children. Ever. And this was her response to the prosecutor asking her why she waited in the Nissan, knowing full well that everyone was about to die. At one point, the other prosecutor asked about Ahmed's, quote, confession to Musa Hadi. The story about the gas station and the dangling rope, Tuba's response was subtle but stunning. Quote, till now, I am upset with Ahmed and my heart is bleeding. He should have told me. He should have come and told us everything clearly. And now this is the first time since the trial began that the defense strategy was clear. They were trying to blame Ahmed, not for the quadruple murder, but for failing to tell anyone, including his grieving parents, that he witnessed, quote, the accident. In the end, Ahmed did not testify, hoping to shield his alibi from cross-examination, which is probably smart on his behalf. Ridiculous or not, that was their story. But before the defense rested, the jury did hear from the other Shafia son, the one who isn't going to jail. Uh, Mom and dad sobbed at first sight of their little boy, who was 15 when social services took him away. They called him B, um, like I mentioned. Um, He waved and smiled and then left no doubt about where his loyalty lie. Quote, when I read the newspapers, it's like I don't even know these people, he said. They have set up a completely different personality. All that isn't true. According to B, the kids lived a charmed and spoiled existence. If anything, they took advantage of their parents, making up stories about problems at school so teachers would, quote, let us away with stuff. Gigi didn't want to be placed in foster care. She was just saying that for, quote, attention and popularity. Zahar was never suicidal. It was all part of a plan to get, quote, special treatment. And Zainab was out of control, stealing the car keys all the time. B also insisted that he never spied on his sisters. He never confronted about confronted Sahar about her boyfriend in a restaurant, and it might ha- not have been him, not Hamid, who typed, quote, where to commit murder into Google. At the time, I was suicidal, he explained. I wasn't familiar with the word suicide or suicidal, and I thought murder was the same thing. So B is covering for literally everyone, which is so insane. These people are so brainwashed. When B finished his testimony, he asked Justice Justice Robert Maranger if he could hug his parents goodbye. The judge declined, saying it wasn't the proper time or place. So basically, to summarize everything, it goes on for a while. The father was the ringleader, demanding it to be done. The son took care of the logistics, scouting out locations, 
and the mother kept it all a secret, ensuring that nobody saw it coming. Muhammad, Tuba, and Hamid, Hamid decided that there was a, quote, diseased limb on the family tree, and their solution was to remove the diseased limb in its entirety and prune the tree back to its good wood, LaSalle said. So the jury went, uh, went out, they went behind closed doors, um, to decide what story they're going to believe. And on January 29th, 2012, after 15 hours of deliberation, a jury found each of the three defendants guilty of four counts of first-degree murder. In Canada, first-degree murder verdicts carry an automatic sentence of life without parole for 25 years. Muhammad will be in his early 80s by the time he's eligible for release. His wife will be 64, and his son, now 21, will be middle-aged at that time. And even if the parole board does find reason to set them free, it will be straight to a waiting airplane for deportation. Although the Shafias were welcomed into Canada with open arms, uh, they actually never did become citizens. So back to Afghanistan they would go. And that concludes the, uh, quote, honor killing of the Shafia family. And as you can see, it's not like actually an honor killing because the daughters really didn't do anything. Neither did the wife, but this is kind of an honor killing and kind of not. It's, it's a little bit tricky. I'm not really going to get into that because I don't, I don't super understand that religion part of it. But uh, ultimately, uh, Muhammad and Ahmed and even Tuba were like literally crazy. And he clearly brainwashed his kids into thinking that he was some sort of all-knowing, all-powerful guy that should be obeyed, which is really sad. And I feel so sad for that B kid that was like sticking up for his brother. That makes me really sad. But anyways, that is the story. I will link the McLean's article. It has so much information in it. I kind of just took the main points from there. Um, and yeah. And don't forget to follow me on Instagram and Twitter at not always polite. I post sneak peeks of episodes as well as other fun little things on there. And yeah, I hope you guys have a great rest of your week. And again, uh, happy holiday season. And I will catch you guys next week. Bye.